Welcome to the Media People Podcast, the show where we learn about the people who make up the media industry to find out where they started, where they are now, and the stories in between. I'm your host, Victor Genova. For more episodes, go to soundcloud.com slash Podcast. Views expressed by participants are personal. What do you think is the highest accolade an individual in the media industry can receive? Is it a can line or perhaps a media innovation award? In my opinion, being referred to as a rock star carries much more weight than any statue ever could. And that's exactly how Marketing Magazine has described this episode's guest, Mitch Joel. There are many things you can call Mitch, from best-selling author to public speaker to blogger to podcaster to digital media agency president, the list goes on. Today we sit down with Mitch Joel, Canada's rock star of digital marketing to learn about life growing up in Montreal starting off as a writer covering the Canadian music scene, co-founding a record label, and being the president of Miram, a digital media agency that started out life as Twist Image. Mitch, thanks for your time today. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Welcome to my office. Well, thank you for having us in. Uh, Tell us a little bit about what the last week has been like for you, because it seems like it's been a little busy. You've been from Europe to America and back. Yeah, I um, well, the past week has been exceptionally busy. Last week, I found myself doing two events for Google, which I do a lot of sort of presentations to large audiences as part of growing this digital marketing agency we have called Miram, which used to be Twist Image. It's a whole other story. But I was in, um, I live in Montreal. Uh, right now, today, we're in Toronto. We have an office here as well. And I was in Hamburg, Germany at the end of the week. And the day before that, I was in Dublin, Ireland. Dublin was a Google event uh, focused on retail. And in Hamburg, we had an event that was focused on sort of performance and data. And I was very honored to be asked to speak. I do a couple events for Google every year. It's a lot of fun to do because they bring in some really interesting brands and clients. And you get to see the infrastructure of the amazing thing that is Google. Mitch, as the president of Miram, though, what does a typical day look like for you? I kind of want to get inside your head and understand that. I've established a life that doesn't have a typical day, sort of by people often say, like, you started this agency. So our the real agency was called Twist Image that we started in 2000 that became acquired by WPP last May. And we switched it over to Miram, which is Latin for wonder. We were sort of brought together with a bunch of other agencies uh, three or four months ago. And so it's all new. So the sort of reference of Miram and whatever goes back and forth. But my, but the the reason I'm telling you this is because when we launched Twist Image, people said to me, like, what's your exit strategy being a founder of a startup? And I said this, you know, starting this business was my exit strategy. I didn't want to have a typical day. Um, but if you were saying to me, like, what does a day look like? It can look, it, it usually goes down two paths. One path is if I'm traveling, one path is if I'm not. If I'm not traveling, a typical day is get up, family, kids, uh, that sort of amazing thing that I do everything for, which I love dearly. Um, I'll head down to the office fairly early. I'm a, I believe that the, not the early bird gets the worm, but I believe that Mitch gets the worm because I find I do my best work really early on in, in isolation. Usually grab a coffee, walk over to the office, um, and spend that first couple of hours um, creating. It could be a blog post. It could be a podcast. It could be just notes for clients. It could be book idea. It could be presentation sketches. I don't know what. Um, but it sort of primes me for the day. And again, if I'm, if I'm localized, if I'm working out of the office and Miram offices, it's, it's meetings, it's meeting people, it's connections. I'm really basically about connections and creating are my two biggest things. Um, if I'm traveling, it, it probably sounds sexy, but it's actually quite boring. It's, it's planes, it's lounges, it's um, 
it's craziness. It's sitting around. It's doing work that I'd like to be doing in one physical location anywhere. Um, but all of it is really gratifying because I'm doing what I want to do, which is nice. Going back to your title on LinkedIn, uh, you're listed as the president of Miram, but you do so much more. If you meet someone from cold and they ask you what you do, how would you summarize that in a couple of sentences? Yeah, no, I get this like in the park when I'm playing with my kids and people go, so what do you do? And um, it's, it's a hard thing to answer. I guess what I do is, uh, you know, Seth Godin really eloquently always says that he notices things. And I'm so jealous because I'd love to say, I notice things. That's what I do. Right? I, don't, I don't just do that. Um, I tell people that what I really do is try and make the connection between what businesses are doing with actual customers more relevant and, and stronger. I sometimes do this in the form of helping the clients that we work with here at Miram. I sometimes do this in expressing it to the world in a blog post. I sometimes do this at greater scale in a book. I sometimes do it in a more public venue like a presentation. But what I try and do is make brands connect better to their customers. That's really what I do. I want to get into a couple of things you brought up there, but we'll do that in a bit. Let's go back to the beginning. You mentioned Montreal earlier on. Are you from there? I am born and raised. Can't you tell by my accent? Um, <laughs> I born and raised in Montreal, lower middle class family, uh, very, very strong work ethic, both entrepreneurial and just sort of working. Uh, my father was a pharmacist who owned a pharmacy, so he really was a small business owner. Uh, my mother uh, still is actually a bookkeeper uh, and very much a small business owner out of the home, uh, having clients over the years and stuff like that. Uh, family of four boys, so very, very frisky, as I like to say. An environment, because it was lower middle class, that my parents basically around holiday time would buy like one gift for all of us to share versus four individual gifts. And it used to be, I mean, it was, it was technology based a lot of times. So the first Pong, when that came out, then the Atari 2600, then in television, then the Atari 800 computer. Uh, then as soon as internet BBSs became available, modems, I was big onto that. And they sort of created this trajectory of, I guess, collaboration. A lot of the stuff that we talk about as modern workforce was being enforced by, in my family environment back then. And so what would you classify yourself as growing up? academic, athlete, what were your interests? Terrible. Yeah, no, in fact, saying that makes me realize how big of a loser I was. I was nor <laughs> academic, nor athletic. Based on what you've accomplished, I don't think anyone believes yeah. you're a loser. Well, it means there's hope, is what it means. It means if your kid is not a nerd or not as athletic, that, um, I, you know, it's hard for me to, to say. I can, I can look back and look at things in my life that were of interest to me. I see things like I used to do magic shows. So there, there had to be some link to the performance and public speaking and persuasion of marketing. So early on, you were very seduced by the idea of having an audience, per se. Not really, because I'm extremely introverted, which is strange. I was very introverted as a young person. And I think I've, I've transitioned out of introversion into just social awkward, which is when I'm in a, an environment, a chamber of commerce, a meeting, I'm actually, I, I actually am the person who's not quick enough to come out and speak to people. I'm a bit shy in, in venues like that. But there was that uh, one. I loved comic books when I was younger. So there's something about fantasy, storytelling, art, creativity that was there for sure. You and I could talk forever if comic books are your thing. <laughs> I see your Iron Man on your, I've on your got MacBook Iron Man Pro. on my MacBook yeah. Pro. Um, so there's that. The other component for me was music. I always had a very, very deep passion for music, both listening and playing. Um, so I guess the music part, playing, uh, I started off very young playing mandolin, I played a bit of banjo, violin, but my main instrument in my teens, which is when it counts, would have been electric bass. 
And so I had oh, okay. a passion for that too. Well, I played bass as well. What, what kind of bass did you have? Uh, so my first bass was, uh, it was the bass of doom. It was the infamous Jackal Pastorius bass. I had a flame burst Fender jazz bass that had the frets removed because I bought it used from someone. Oh God, so you were playing it by ear then. I had lessons, but I didn't know that that was the infamous Jacko Pastorius bass. It wasn't the bass of doom. It was somebody took like a, a copy of a Fender P bass and just tore out the, the frets. But I learned how to play fretless, which is quite unique. Um, so that was my first bass. I then had a PVT-40. I had some Washburn basses. I had a, an Ibanez here and there. Um, eventually graduated. I, I guess my real bass would have been a Spectre. Okay. That, I, that I loved. I mean, I still and I still have it to this day. The neck, the neck is severely warped; that can't be fixed. But I still have that bass. And actually, that uh, leads me into another question I had later. You had a deep passion for music, and one of the things that you started earlier on in your career—maybe this was your first entrepreneurial venture—was distortion. No, distortion came a lot later. Distortion was my re-entry into the music industry. Uh, my first entry in the music industry but was your entry as an entrepreneur. Though, would you say that? Was no, 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 it wasn't. No, no, it wasn't. Okay. No, I um. I interviewed Tommy Lee from Motley Crue for a magazine, and that really got me interested in media marketing, advertising, and communications, which is where I find myself today. From there, the owner of this teen magazine decided he wanted to shift, wasn't interested in doing it as much anymore. I really enjoyed interviewing rock stars. It was sort of cool to be a young kid and be able to go backstage. It was like almost famous, the movie. So I started publishing music magazines. That was my first entrepreneurial venture, uh, and I was really young. I started publishing music magazines. I had two of them, and we helped launch a third. Uh, they became quite significant in the regions. They did really well. They were free to the, to the customer, but they were advertising-supported was how it worked. Um, and then I left that industry, went on the trajectory of Internet, that whole world, which is really my life. And just before Twist Image started, which is now Miram back in 2000, I launched this record label called The Store. I met somebody here in Toronto who was working out of the EMI Music Publishing Studios, and we started The Store. And that was a label where we signed, I guess the, the biggest signing that we had was a band called The Lexus on Fire. Very familiar with them. And when we signed them, the other big move that I think we did intelligently is we also um, brought in Dallas Green as an acoustic artist, which inevitably became City in Color, which is also quite popular. Twist Image was really growing and getting interesting, and so was Distort, although Lexus on Fire hadn't broken yet. I decided to sell my half back to my business partner, and I decided to continue on with Twist Image. He then went on, and then Alexis on Fire broke. So I can't really claim um, any responsibility for their fame other than saying we had some early inclinations that this could, was going to be a cool band. But also, too, you did it at a really unique time because this was really terrible time. <laughs> I'm saying unique, but I mean terrible time. Napster, people had put Napster in its place, but downloading was the big thing yeah. for music, and there was no iTunes at that time, so no one had monetized to digital downloads at that point. So were you, you kind of happy looking back that you got out when you did? No, no. I mean, I wish I would have stuck with it. The truth is I'm just really, um, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm somebody who I think, I mean, I hate using the word integrity because then you question it, but I really felt that I wasn't able to contribute to the success of the label like my business partner was here on the ground working with the bands and doing it. I was really interested in what was happening in digital media and what I was doing at Twist Image. And I just thought ethically I could just roll with both and see how it goes. But professionally, I just it didn't feel right. So my decision was really more driven by the fact that I was, I was really seeing something with what Twist Image was and what obviously became something really interesting. Let's go into Twist Image right now. Uh, 
how did that idea come about? Who were you working with when you started? How did that get off the ground? Yeah, it wasn't mine. It was, so Mick Campy, who was one of my two, one of my four business partners at the time, um, him and this other guy Abu Rosenheck, who's, who's our chief operating officer now, are four partners. They were doing this sort of multimedia business at the time. I was looking to start my own consulting business. I thought I would go out and help businesses connect better to customers, and I. I felt that I could help them with their business, and in return, instead of being paid, they could build my website and do my brand and stuff. And as we went through the process of that, I think we all realized, I think we're trying to do the same thing. Why don't we do it together? That was really the beginning of it, and I think the last cog in the wheel for that was when we brought in Mark Goodman. Mark was the guy who had built up FCB, a very known agency in the world here in Canada, and he became the sort of fourth partner that was several years later. You know, we had some client wins. We had some, some good, interesting things happen early. And the idea behind it was really um, how to, I mean, look, you got to go back to 2000, 2002, and it was a different time. We were trying to explain to marketing departments that technology, internet, digital is going to be a huge component of what you do. You fast forward 15 years later, we were right. And that was basically it. The model at the time was how do we get technology people, um, to not be in charge of these marketing things, the website, which was typically what IT was doing at the time, and then how to help marketing people not be so scared of the IT department. When you started uh, at Twist Image, what was your role like then? Like, was it uh, very grassroots? Because I imagine it was a smaller company and that even though you might have been the president, one of the partners, you still had a lot of grassroots, grassroots responsibilities. Yeah, of course. And I still, I still do to this day. It's the same thing. I, I decided early on I didn't want to hit the highway and go to all the big organizations and knock on their door and go, do you need a website or can I help you with your online advertising? Um, and so early days, we started the blog, Six Pixels of Separation, the podcast. And just this, uh, this, you know, what has become inbound marketing and content marketing is just something we did 15 years ago. That's all it was. I didn't want to hustle in the sort of knocking on doors way. And speaking became another gateway for that. So the role really hasn't changed. What's changed is the platform and popularity of both, you know, what we call the Mitch Joel brand and the Six Pixels sort of content platform has just you know, taken root and taken hold and people are excited by it and I love doing it. So nothing has changed other than the fact that we're trying to do more and more business at scale. I wanted to ask you about Six Pixels of Separation. Uh, where did that brand come from? Where did you get the idea? What does it mean? I wish it was mine. Um, I was creating abstracts for speaking events and um, one of the copywriters that used to work with us, who's no longer there, basically had a line somewhere in this, one of the abstract descriptions that, you know, we're no longer six degrees of separation away from anyone. We're now six pixels away. And I thought that that was a sort of clever play on words. And I just sort of ran with that. And I thought that that would be unique. Again, it came at a time when calling, we used to be called the twist image blog, which was what you did back then. And then slowly they became brandable assets. Like they were just names for blogs and more fun things. And that was the one I just latched onto. Something about the line caught my attention. Uh, I thought it was interesting. I thought it was something that was somewhat ownable for us. I felt like it was a platform that would always have legs because you'll always talk about pixels in terms of resolution and connectivity. So, Because six pixels of separation as a media brand, would you say it's been across three platforms? You've had the blog, the podcast, and then the book as well. I think it's bigger than that. I think the, the way we see it is almost like six pixels of separation is like the holding company of all of our content. Okay. And that's sort of how we treat it. So we would say that within the six pixels content platform would be 
the blog, the podcast, the articles that I write, even my Twitter feed, Facebook, the channels that we sort of go into, the book, the speaking, it all plays into this sort of content platform that we bucket under six pixels of separation. Um, so there's some sort of branded stuff of that. The, the blog and the podcast and the book are the branded con- contents of that, but there's everything else is part of it as well. What people don't realize or what I, don't, I think they're, they're shocked by when I say this, and it's true, is I'm the only one who does all of it. Nobody does anything else. Every slide that anyone sees in a presentation is me. There's been no intervention from anybody. Occasionally, a creative person will see a slide I do here and cringe and just send me a version of it that they'd prefer if I, that I'd use. But my Twitter feed, uh, all of those things are only me. I have no assistance. There's nobody posting a single pixel other than me. So it's a, a lot like what you say in your books where you really keep that one-to-one relationship with your audience or your customer. Which is where I struggle, to be honest. It's the part that I don't do well on. You know, because I'm creating so much, I'm not interacting that much. And I think that if I've had one flaw, it's that you know, I don't do a lot of data capture. I don't do anything with the analytics of it. I don't. Um, I, I, I try to interact. I'm not great at interacting with people in the comments like, hey, thanks for doing this and you're awesome or like responding on Twitter. I'm sometimes not that amazing at it. It's not that I don't care. It's not that I don't see it. It's just, it's just not me. I'm not great at it. But that's a difficult thing to do because as your audience grows, you're going to get more replies, more yeah. people are going to interact with you, and then that could become a full-time job for you it is. into itself. It is and it can be. And I, I definitely would say when people ask me about it, I say this is very much a... Uh, do as I say, not as I do scenario, because I would never recommend the way I do it to anybody to do it. It'd be, it's counter to what I would say. I wanted to ask you about your books. I've read both of them, love them. Uh, but how did those come about? Was this an idea you had, say, for the Six Pixels of Separation book where you took it to a publisher? How long did it take to write those? Did they approach you? Yeah. So, um, Again, if you go back and think about what I said earlier where my first job was interviewing Tommy Lee from Motley Crue, I was a passionate writer. I don't want to say I'm a music journalist. I always found that to be pretentious. But technically, you did do journalism. At yeah, Concordia. for sure. I, so it's, it's in your background. Uh, yeah, sort of. I mean, I spent a, a semester there that, that I dropped out of, and it wasn't really – I took some classes. Um, but I – yeah, I mean, you would say I was a journalist. There's no doubt. Most people would say I was a journalist. I just pr- don't – I feel that to me, I wasn't. I was writing about music and things I love. I wasn't really digging into stories and trying to uncover stuff. So I just look at it from a different prism as a as a writer. When you're a writer, you always want to dream. You dream of writing a book, for sure. You do. You dream of that that sort of dream. And I'm just really lucky. I was doing the podcast Six Pixels of Separation, and I was given an advanced copy of Dan Ariely's now infamous uh, behavioral economics book, Predictably Irrational. And uh, as we did the conversation, Dan said to me that, you know, you should probably write a book. I'm looking at all the stuff you're producing. It's really interesting. And he wound up introducing me to his literary agent in Manhattan. We wound up connecting. Um, I showed him this idea for this book, Six Pixels of Separation. He really liked it. Um, He presented it to Grand Central Publishing, which is one of the largest book publishers in the world. They're owned by Hachette Book Group. They were super interested, and then you get really, really excited. I mean, if you're a guy living in Montreal dreaming of writing a book, it's sort of one of those dreams, and suddenly you find yourself in Manhattan with a major literary agent and a massive book publisher interested in doing a global deal for your book. It's pretty much, you know, from the music industry days, being discovered in a club and being signed to a major label. That's what it was. 
So, you know, my excitement really was high. And people say to me, you know, what are some of the things in your life that you, you sort of look at as a pinnacle of achievement? That was one of them. You know, standing in Manhattan and having a major literary agent say, I want to sign you and there's an interest from a major book publisher. That's pretty much one of the mountaintops for me personally, my prof- personally in my professional career. Um, so the process of the book was... Uh, I mean, it's, it was hard. I mean, back then in 2007, and back then it wasn't that long ago, but it, it was in terms of the publishing industry, it was a process. You'd sign the book deal. The book would only come out a year and a half later. You know, it takes four months of writing. Uh, when I wrote the book, it surprises a lot of people to know that um, my wife was expecting. I was running a growing business, and I didn't miss a day of blogging, and I wrote a book. Um, so I, I really, That's pretty daunting. I, I really added it into I didn't take anything off the plate i know i draw i'm sure i dropped a couple balls along the way but that was the spirit of it but how do you go planning for the book because when you're writing about this industry and it's always changing are you ever concerned when you're writing that whatever you're putting into any of your chapters might be superseded or outdone by something new that comes out a couple of months just before your book launches or can you edit yeah. that as you get right up into no, it? No, I mean you can edit little things. You can do little things. But this you know, one is there's a setup and the setup in the book is I'm gonna be talking about technology and things that are moving really, really fast and by the time you read this things may or may not have worked out. I'll also use examples within both books, Control Alt Delete and Six Pixels, where I'll say to people, by the time this book is published, this may be changed, but here's where we're at now. And then the biggest, I think, idea that I try to do in both books, and I think they both really do stand up today, is in the fact that if you put, you can put the examples aside, it's what I was saying about the examples that are as relevant today as they were back in 2006, back in 2007. The last component of it is a book used to be the sort of beginning, middle, and end of a period of someone's life, an author, a biographer, whoever it might be. Because of digital technology, it's a moment in time. So the coolest thing about my books, I think, is the fact that you can look at a podcast or blogs and look at it from even when it was being written to post as like this amazing addendum to it. Um, my thinking has changed so dramatically since the early 2000s. So yes, there's examples in the book that tell a story that I might have even changed positions on, but that's why I have a blog. So it's now become not this finite thing. It's a part of an organism that has a timeline that's extended across massive things. So I might use a quote from a podcast that I did in one of my books, but wow, if you're interested, there's an hour more of that content sitting out there for you to grab and listen to at any moment. On the other side of it would be the blog, which is I have a blog post and I'm like, you know what, this is really interesting, but it's a blog post. So I'm gonna park that idea and know that I'm gonna extend it and tell a much bigger story with a lot more examples in a book at one place. So you have original content, you have repurposed content, you have extended content, you have other forms of media that are attaching onto it. I think that that's what makes my books interesting because I'm constantly creating content like that. Control Alt Delete, actually. I wanted to say you were the first person, your book introduced me to the term content marketing. And it, no, it was way ahead of its time, even though technically speaking, before the term came about, there were some companies engaged in it like Red Bull. But I remember when I was rereading it again, 2013 that book came out and then you probably were writing that you'd say in 2012 so you're way ahead of the curve because i mean i'm in digital media and content marketing is what people are talking about right now a lot of pushes you're seeing a lot of uh, jobs go that way uh, i wanted to jump a little bit ahead though uh and talk about miram and uh how that acquisition came about why you decided to go that path because everything was going really well for twist image you guys could have just kept going the way it was going we were, you know, again, we were four very 
entrepreneur-based individuals that had a passion for growing this business. After 15 years of doing it, we wanted to do more. We wanted, you know, not just a couple more clients a year. We wanted to really reinvent. We wanted to re-energize the organization. And we'd never thought that an acquisition would do that because suddenly you're not the entrepreneur anymore. But what we realized is that through an acquisition, we could have all of those opportunities. We could still remain and become very, very entrepreneurial. And that basically the nature of these deals, whether it's a WPP, whether it's a publicist, IPG, whoever else it might be, uh, they, they have an expectation that you're actually still going to run the business and do it. They don't operate. They just own their holding company. So the signs pointed into a very positive way. The challenge, of course, is that you know, now that we're 18 months post-acquisition, there are ramifications of that, right? There's getting to the people who are here, who are working, excited about it. There's, there's the clients understanding what it means, what the name change means. It was just a, the logical step for us after 15 years to continue to grow, to continue to be interesting. Miram, as, as, a, as this sort of amazing new agency, gives us access. I had a handful of analytics people here, and suddenly we have almost 100 people who do analytics all over the world in different markets. Uh, the case studies that you're bringing to clients, think about suddenly the case studies that open up globally, the ability to work on global platforms, the ability to, to just think a lot bigger and do a lot bigger things and have the capabilities to deliver on them was really, really enticing to us. So I'm really excited about it, uh, knowing full well that it's a, it's a process and it's a, it's a change and it's a dynamic, there's a dynamic difference. A lot of it also isn't just us. It's just the nature of the industry. Our industry has changed so much. We used to compete with other digital shops and other traditional agencies trying to do digital. Now I'm competing with all sorts of agencies from specialized in public relations, which are more general to more specialized. We just do social content. We're competing with Google. They have YouTube. BuzzFeed, AOL, they have contents, creative services they're offering. We're competing with the Deloitte's and Andersons, the consultants of the world. We're competing with the Bethany Modas, the YouTubers of the world who are doing it on their own. We're I mean, I have a list now of 13 to 15 competitors that I compete with for brand Even brands are just bringing it in-house. So the landscape also has changed dramatically in the past, I would say, two years. So the challenges, which I look at as always opportunities, are really interesting and dynamic, and they change. And I do believe that you know, I, I'm very much governed by a quote that I read in Tom Peters' book, Reimagine, which I love that book to this day. I think it's a great book on leadership and management. And he has a quote from this General Shinseki from the U.S. Army, retired. Um, and he goes, if you don't like change, you're going to like irrelevance even less. And nice. it's a great, you know, and we have a lot of change management quotes. We hear them all throughout the world. But for me, that one sort of always strikes a chord on me. And I, I think as, as we get older and as the business matures, it is, it's always harder to change. It's, it's you know, it's the, um, it's that whole, you know, an innovator's dilemma, that whole Clayton Christensen model. It's very, it's really hard to constantly reinvent yourself. Looking back at the last 15 years, though, of Twist Image, Miram, uh, which execution or which campaign stands out the most or are you most proud of? Oh, it's like asking which one of your children do you like the most? I don't, I, I won't go there. I mean, I won't go there with a specific campaign. I, I just think that, you know, you pitch work, you try and win business, and then you really do try your best to make that client super happy. And for me, it's just a question of always being there. It doesn't always work. It's a very messy industry, I'd love to say. It's all, you know, it's all belly rubs and lollipops in the boardroom, and it's not. It's, it's a challenging business for sure. Um, 
But I would say holistically, you know, I can look back at some of our bigger clients, you know, TD Bank, uh, the Dairy Farmers of Canada, which would be like the sort of, you know, got milk people from the States. And just having those long-term relationships with clients means way more to me than this sort of campaign into the take-home a, a Lyon I can or something like that. It's not... It's never really been in our culture. It's been about how do we build sustainable relationships? How do we take clients from where they're nascent or non-existent in digital, make them a powerhouse? It's about how do we um, help complex, large organizations be more digitally savvy? And you know, we've been really successful in that, and we continue to be. Uh, last question before we break. Uh, if you weren't in the media industry, what would you be doing and why? You know, it's... Look, I've had a very... I call it squiggly career. I call it that in control alt delete that you know it's not a linear thing. I didn't graduate and sort of go on this trajectory. I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. I've spent a long time, it's been 15 years at Twist Image, fine Miram, but I've been doing this a long time since the late 80s. And I built a career off of doing what I want to be doing. And when people say to me, you know, what are some of the greatest moments? For sure, I mentioned this the sort of signing of a book personally was one. The other one I can tell you is that when we went through the acquisition process, which is very complex and daunting, it's a public company, it's a large organization, WPP, I always say that, you know, I remember looking down and just seeing that I was wearing my jeans and my sneakers and I was really proud of myself. Because <laughs> I did it, that is meaning to me, to me that was symbolism for that I'm doing my own thing, what I want to be doing. Nice. Mitch, before we go, um, tell us your blog address if anyone wants to jump in after this. Sure. I mean, again, so we're moving between Twist Image and Miram, so it's a bit complex. What I tell people is just go to MitchJoel.com, and it's the easiest place to redirect you to exactly where you need to be. Perfect. And your two books, Six Pixels of Separation and Control-Alt-Delete? Yeah. Both available there? Available everywhere. Uh, you know, again, we, it wasn't self-published, so you can find them uh, hopefully online, and, and I'll find bookstores if there are any existing by the time you publish this. Perfect. Mitch, thanks for your time. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's show. For more episodes, go to soundcloud.com slash mediapeoplepodcast and follow me on Twitter at Vic Genova.